Tim McBride is a professor at Washington University where he focuses on health care policy. He's also served on a board that oversees Missouri's Medicaid program, so he has a lot to say about the possibility of expansion. McBride joins St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and Jacqueline Driscoll on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hi, and welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and my co-host in Jefferson City is... Jacqueline Driscoll. And we are here with Dr. Tim McBride of Washington University. He's a health economist. And I'm going to have Dr. McBride explain uh, the name of his school and what he's the head of and all those things. Yeah, good morning. Thanks. My, I'm the Bernard Becker Professor at Washington University and the co-director of the Center for Health Economics and Policy at Washington University. I've been there about 10 years, but I've lived in St. Louis about 30 years. Uh, I started at UM St. Louis in the economics department and then moved to St. Louis University. So I like to say I can't hold a job. It's he's been at three different universities in St. Louis. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Well, we have Dr. McBride here because um, he is an expert on the Medicaid program and specifically also Medicaid expansion. And we want him to talk to us about a couple things going on with Missouri's Medicaid program. I want Dr. McBride to talk to us about analysis he did earlier this year on the impact of Medicaid expansion on the state budget. We did an analysis of what a full Medicaid expansion, pretty much a straight Obamacare expansion up to 138% of poverty as envisioned in the original law, um, and what it would look like in 2020 initially, and then through 2024. We looked at this, as you mentioned, as a fiscal analysis. Really, our main test that we are asked to do was only to look narrowly at the effect on the Missouri state budget. So we didn't look at things like the effects on jobs, effects on revenue, revenue, tax revenues, and ancillary effects. And, And actually, more specifically, we mostly looked at the effects on the Medicaid budget, not on things like mental health budget, prisons, things like that. Oh, so that is very narrow. You're just yes. looking mm-hmm. at what would happen to the state budget as it concerns Medicaid. Right. We were asked, we were funded to do this by Missouri Foundation for Health, and that's the charge that we were given. One could do this in various different ways, but we did a fairly conservative estimate, I think, in, in that regard. Okay, and we should say the reason this is of interest is because uh, people are trying to get a ballot initiative on the ballot, or maybe more than one, uh, asking voters if they want Medicaid expansion. So the cost to the state could be a very real issue we're dealing with in at least, I would say, the next two years or so. Um, So can you explain a little bit about what you, you found? Is this going to cost Missouri money if Medicaid expansion is approved by the voters? Well, the bottom line is that 
initially in the first year, it's roughly budget neutral is what we found, um, depending on the assumptions. But in given the size of our Medicaid programs, $12 billion, we found our best estimate is that it would lower the state Medicaid budget by about $40 million. So that's a pretty small amount of money. On net, it brings in somewhere between $1.8 and $2 billion to ensure around 230,000 adults, maybe 40,000 children is what we estimated. You say in the first year it would be budget neutral. What does that mean for, for future years? Or, did, or was this fiscal impact research specifically designated for only the first year? Well, we were initially asked to only look at 2020. Um, but later on, when the state auditor's office looked at this, we sent this analysis to the state auditor's office because she's charged with uh, putting together the ballot initiative. You know, just to be clear, we're not part of the advocacy group that does this. We did this as an independent analysis. Um, but we sent everything that we did to the auditor's office, and, and actually it's attached to the ballot language that's on the auditor's website. Um, so we initially did an estimate for 2020, and then uh, the auditor's office asked to, ex- to expand it out to 2024. And in fact, the numbers get better from 2021 to 2024. Um, and let me just sort of give the headline story about why it might surprise people that you can expand Medicaid to 230,000 people and it actually can save the state money. The main reason is there are currently people that enroll in our Medicaid program who are low income uh, and that roll into the Medicaid program on a current basis, month to month, and there's a thing called the match rate. So that when when Missouri covers these people, they pay about 35% of the cost of this. The federal government pays 65%. What would happen under Medicaid expansion is those people would be covered, uh, the state would only have to pay about 10% of the cost and not 35% of the cost. So which, if you can imagine this, there's several thousand people coming in through the door already that we're covering, and we're paying 35% of the costs. And under this scenario of the Medicaid expansion, we'd only pay 10% of the costs. So while it's definitely true that the state would probably have to pay uh, tens of millions of dollars to cover these people initially, they would save the money that they would have spent otherwise, mostly in the permanently and totally disabled. Right. So you're saying there are people who are already on Medicaid mm-hmm. that the state's already paying for. Right. If Medicaid expansion happened, those people would shift into Medicaid expansion where the federal government foots more of the bill for their health care. That's right. Exactly. That's the right way to put it. One of the biggest savers is there's about 4,000 people per month that come in through the door of what's called permanently and totally disabled. And they Um, for whatever reason, and this has happened in most other states, they have not uh, come in and become Medicaid eligible right away. So the state pays 65% of the, I'm sorry, the state pays 35% of the cost. And under the expansion, these people would be immediately eligible just based on their income. And so the state would only pay 10% of the cost. And these people are quite expensive, like we're talking over $10,000 per year. It sounds like the best estimate that you've, you've laid out in your paper is initially the state would save in the first year about $39 million. Right. But when you look at the extremes, like the worst situation mm-hmm. and the best situation, you have the state saving 
in the best situation, I guess, quote unquote best, uh, $94.6 million. And in the worst situation, the state uh, having to pay in $42.3 million. Although, to your point, the state would be receiving $2 billion if it did that. Roughly between, you know, this is the net amount. So the state roughly would, you know, increase the overall spending on these 230,000 people would increase between one and a half and two billion dollars. But the net, this is the net amount you just cited, between negative 40 and negative 100 or positive 40. Right. So I can see some people looking at this and saying, that's a pretty big swing we're taking from saving, potentially saving $94.6 million if we expand Medicaid, to it costing us $42.3 million. Can you explain why there's this range? Uh, that's a good question, and you know the there are a range of assumptions you have to make when you make an estimate like this. And we are again very transparent in our document about this, and we are going to put up on our website uh, what's called a data visualization that allows any person to actually go up there and play around with the assumptions themselves and see if you don't believe our assumptions, you can change them. Um, but there's several things that go into this, like how much it costs per member per month to pay to cover Medicaid, what's the rate of growth of Medicaid spending over time. One assumption that people might think is critical, while well, you can offer this coverage to, say, the 200, 300,000 people that are not eligible right now, but how many of them actually would take it up, what's called the take-up rate. And the original estimates before Medicaid expansion happened under Obamacare, the take-up rate was about 50%, but under most states' experience, it's about 73%. So that's the estimate we used. But if more people take it up, the cost will be higher. Fewer people take it up, it'll be lower. How many people currently are on Missouri's Medicaid uh, program? How much of the state budget does it take up right now without Medicaid expansion? A great question. It's about 850,000 people are on the Medicaid program, and they basically fall into four buckets, the aged, the disabled, um, the uh, parents with children, and then the children with the children being the biggest group. There are about 500,000. So of about 500,000 of that 800,000 is children. And depending on how you do the estimates, whether you look at just sort of the straight so-called general revenue fund estimate, for Medicaid, it's about $8 billion, but when you add in, our state has a lot of funky things they do with their budget, which I could get into if you want, but when you do a full accounting like economists would really want you to do and that, that we did, um, it's probably closer to $11, $12 billion. My friends at the state and the Parson administration believe that's the right number to use for the current cost of the Medicaid program. So if voters did approve Medicaid expansion, how many people might that add to the program, and what might that look like in terms of the state budget? It would add about 230,000 adults to the program. Um, part of the reason we feel confident about this, and throughout our report, we checked other sources. We actually called several analysts from around the country. We looked at other states' experience. Um, and so we the the way we actually came up with that number is using well-respected national data sources. And I ran those numbers and ran them several different ways. And then we came up with this number of about 
230,000. And what I felt good about was a few weeks after that, the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. came out with a number which was almost exactly the same. And then um, another health policy center came out with a number very close to that. Um, so I think that number of about 230,000 adults is probably pretty pretty good. Um, could be could vary again a bit. There may be we estimate that there are some children who are uninsured that could roll into the program as well. Maybe forty thousand. So with those children, those forty thousand and the the two hundred thirty thousand adults we're talking about. Two hundred seventy one thousand five hundred. I have a couple questions about the ad- adults that you expect would enroll if Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. occurred. Are these people who are uninsured? Are they people who have insurance now that we think then would move into Medicaid expansion and and out of private insurance or employer-based insurance? We have an uninsurance rate in the state now after Obamacare has been passed that's dropped to about 10%, um, maybe 9% or so. So a good share of this 230,000 is people that are currently uninsured. It's worth noting that under our current Medicaid program, there are certain types of individuals who are just literally not eligible for the program, single males, single females, and married couples who are poor. Even if you have a very low income below the poverty line, 20%, $0, you're not eligible unless you're disabled. So so those people would be eligible immediately for the uh, program. Also, if you have assets, um, they do what's called an asset check now to, to make if your assets are too high, which is really not very high, about $3,000, you're not eligible for the program. That's not true under the Affordable Care Act expansion. So there's a range of people that who are adults would roll into the program just because the rules are different. Um, then the other people, you asked a great question. We looked at all different types of people, including those who are currently buying so-called market-based marketplace plans, mostly people between 100 and 138% of poverty line. By the way, the poverty line for a single individual is about 13,000. So um, those people are currently going into the marketplaces and buying coverage. We assumed 100% of them would take up Medicaid coverage because it's free, basically. And um, there's, we assume a f- small amount of people who have employer coverage would switch from their employer coverage to Medicaid, maybe 10%. Um, and that's what's so-called crowd out. Maybe people like at Walmart or low-income jobs who say, huh, okay, my coverage costs me a little bit of money. Why don't I go to Medicaid? Because I'm working part-time and I'm below poverty. We should take a break very briefly, and we will be back talking about the fiscal impact of Medicaid expansion with Dr. Tim McBride after this sponsor message. And we're back. Jacqueline, you have a question? (laughs) Sure, yes. One of the main issues for several of the conservatives that we've brought on the show is that it's going to cost the state more money. And I know that your analysis looks directly into this. Um, but when people hear 
there's going to be more people on Medicaid, it's easy to assume that it's going to cost them more money. You've right. addressed this a little bit uh, in terms of the federal government picking up more of, of the tab, but I, I believe it was Representative Wood that we spoke with that said, either way, you're expanding a program, even though the federal government is picking up more of the tab, we're still going to have to pay more and we just don't have that room in the budget. Can you dig a little bit further into that for us? I've heard that argument for a long time, and that's why we we focused our analysis the way it is, because the right sort of way to look at that is the net f- fiscal impact on the state. So it's certainly true that the overall budget would go, you know, the expenditures on these individuals when you roll them into Medicaid would go up. But if you're getting an almost equal amount or actually larger amount back from the federal government, then the net impact what you have to get from Missouri taxpayers is less. That's essentially what we're saying. So um, that's, you know, it's negative $39 million is what we say would be the net impact. So this would lead to a reduction in Missouri taxpayer, the needs for income taxes and all that in Missouri. A number of the people we've talked to seem to say that Medicaid expansion would cost $200 million dollars. Uh, right, in right. your in your worst case scenario, you have it costing ninety four point six million dollars. So, I, I'm curious about why we keep hearing from state representatives and senators who say this is going to cost the state two hundred million dollars, and we wouldn't be able to find that money. And you're actually saying it's not going to cost anything, and if it does, it's going to cost less than half of what their estimate is. Right. So if the ballot language, which is now getting signatures and which may be on the ballot in 2020, um, when the auditor, the state auditor, asked for a looked at this independently, and she's required by law to put a estimate on the effects of this. So anytime we vote and it has a, some fiscal effects, it says the net fiscal effect is. She had our analysis. Um, she looked at it, her staff did, and um, they, they didn't have to accept it, but they looked at it pretty thoroughly. They asked us some questions. Um, it's attached to the auditor's report, uh, but they also asked the state what they believed would happen under a Medicaid expansion. And their estimate from the state government, the Parson administration, is that it would have a net effect of $200 million increase in costs. Now, I believe what they probably did was pretty much assume no savings, no net savings to offset that at all. If you read the report, read between the lines, it's a little bit Byzantine, but if you read between the lines and you do the math, it's basically going to increase cost by about $2 billion. The match rate for the state is 10%, 2 billion times 0.1 is $200 million. It's maybe not that quite that simple, but I think it kind of reads that simply, that that's sort of what the state assumed, that they just don't assume any of these net savings. But every other state in the country has seen these savings, so that's why we did what we did. Is there any challenges or difficulties that may arise from the legislators not getting out in front of this, maybe even in terms of, of fiscal impact, where let's say it does make it on the ballot, uh, voters approve it, and then the legislators have to do something with it later. Is, is there... <clears throat> Any challenges that might arise from that? It's a good question because in states that have put on a ballot initiative to expand Medicaid, this the scenario you're talking about has in fact happened. So 
just to sort of roll back the tape for listeners um, on the history of this, when Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, was passed, many states expanded Medicaid right away, mostly so-called blue states. Um, and then other states sort of started to roll it in. But in the last few years, some states have passed ballot initiatives. Some so-called red states have passed ballot initiatives, um, Idaho and a few others. Um, and when those and what they did to do that was to sort of go around the legislature because the legislature was never going to agree to do it. But the voters pushed it. And so then the question was, okay, what the legislature still has powers, the governor still has powers to implement this. And so when they actually went around to do it, they tried to change the the sort of parameters of the way the Medicaid expansion looked. And so most people, and we can't predict this actually in Missouri, obviously, um, most people think that if this went forward, there would be some of that wrangling going on. Um, it really depends on whether this is a referendum that's a constitutional amendment or whether it's one that just requires a law. The, the, uh, the latter would give the legislature a lot more latitude. And we're going to move on to mm-hmm. talk about the um, drops in the existing Medicaid rolls, uh, right. the people who have um, been dropped from the Medicaid rolls. Uh, Jacqueline is our resident expert on this topic, so I'm going to mm-hmm. let her start off with the questions. Resident expert. I've covered it for a couple weeks (laughs) (laughs) as I'm new also. But yes, so we've talked about this um, since I've I've come on. Um, I just want to get your perspective on that. I sat in on a hearing. Well, actually, it wasn't a hearing. It was a meeting that the House Democrats held. We did see some some Republicans come in to sit in and kind of hear some of the testimony that's going on in the state. But I know that you spoke there. can you just give a little lay of the land? Uh, what's what's happening? Because we're hearing from, you know, Todd Richardson. We're hearing from a lot of conservative members. We're hearing from the governor's office that this isn't a big deal because the people that are getting kicked off aren't, aren't eligible to be receiving Medicaid anyway. Is this something that should be a red flag for, for um, our lawmakers? Yeah, thanks for asking. I was uh, the chair of the Medicaid Oversight Committee for seven years and— um, until last summer, um, and then uh, so this issue came in front of us for over a year while I was chair of the oversight committee. And as you mentioned, I gave some testimony at that meeting um, in the legislature. And so the sort of overall picture of this is since January, from January t- 2018 until now, or the latest numbers in August 20, I'm sorry, January 2018 to August 2019 the Medicaid enrollment has dropped about 127,000 overall, and 100,000 of those are kids. Um, Just to put some perspective on that, the overall drop is about 13% of the enrollment, and in terms of kids, that's about 16%. The overall enrollment was up to pretty close to a million, 977,000. As I mentioned, it's now about 850,000. The uh, I think it's pretty big deal because in other states they've made a bit pretty big deal of putting in, say, a work requirement in Arkansas and 20,000 people lost their coverage and everybody got really upset. And so when I was on the oversight committee and started to notice 100,000 kids losing their coverage, I was like, why aren't people paying attention to this? This is a pretty big deal. So, um, you know, what happened, you know, the main trigger that caused this is something that's pretty mundane and which is called recertification. You basically need to check whether people 
need to remain on the program or not. And they told us in July of 2018 that they were doing this after a two-year hiatus. And frankly, I think the bottom line of the story is that that process triggered a whole lot of other things to happen that led to this drop of 100,000 kids and 127,000 overall. Also at that meeting, I can't exactly remember the name, but I do remember, I believe it was a law firm who worked on behalf of children, said that all of the kids that came in that had lost their coverage, all of them were then recertified because they did, they were still eligible besides one. Why, Why is this happening? So that was, yeah, a lawyer from Legal Services of Eastern Missouri, and he said that 199 out of 200 people that they've helped have been put back on the rolls. So 200 people came to them saying, why did I lose my coverage? And they worked to help them all, but 199 were put back on the rolls. So basically I think what happened was that they, again, I think this is good government practice, frankly, to kind of look at the Medicaid rolls and see whether people should be on the rolls or not. Are they eligible? And in a state like Missouri that didn't expand Medicaid, this is what we have to do. Um, and But I think what happened was it triggered a whole lot of problems because we have other problems in our state with the way we administer our Medicaid program. And they were straightforward about it. And if you don't believe me, you can look at the minutes of the Oversight Committee, which are public and on the website because we talked about it openly in July of 2019 and beyond. So they sent out letters to these recipients, um, actual snail mail letters to people saying, uh, you know, you need to, you know, they originally, they looked at about 10 to 15,000 people per month, and then the ones that they couldn't determine by their own data were currently eligible and should remain on the program, they sent a letter in a snail mail and said, please verify that you should still remain on the program. And many of those went to bad addresses. They didn't have the right address for these people. So that was problem number one. So they came back as not deliverable. Problem number two is they sent these letters, and I've looked at them, and other people have. They're hard to understand. They were often eight or 10 pages long, Byzantine. Um, Sometimes English is not the first language of people. And um, these weren't written very simply. Some people, it's well known that people, some some of the people reported to us that they thought they were getting a letter saying that they're still on the program. They didn't need to do anything. But the letter was actually saying, you need to do something to prove you're still on the program. A third sort of problem was a few years ago when we cut the um, state's budget, we cut a lot of staff, and we outsourced to call centers the people that could help these recipients to um, private outsourced call centers. And these have been problematic from the start, and we've been very critical of this. And so people would call up these call centers. I had individuals contact me directly as chair of the committee who would who would call the call center and wait for 30 to 45 minutes and then get cut off and then call back again wait for another hour and get cut off. And we have we have uh, an inordinate drop rate, was what it's called. People called and they just, their calls get dropped. We have over 30 minute wait times on these call centers. And these are people that are low income people and jobs and um, they don't really have 30 minutes. Maybe their cell phone time is not very much. So that's a third problem as well. There are other problems, but those would be three that I would cite is what sort of triggered the cascading effect of 100,000 kids being dropped. In talking with a lot of people about this drop, um, 
some people are still saying, it, it, as you mentioned, it's good government practice to check whether these people are still eligible. If they accidentally, for some reason, did get dropped from the program, they can still get re-enrolled because they are still eligible. So it's not really that big of a deal because they have back coverage and, um, you know, they're they're not really losing coverage. They're still covered. They're just they they just have to re-enroll. But what are some of the challenges? Why is it a big deal for people that are getting dropped? Well, first of all, you have to know that you're actually dropped. And if you never got the letter because it went to a bad address, you might not know. And so and most of these are kids. So if mom brings in the kids, mostly it's mom. That's why I say that. Um, to get health care, they think they're on Medicaid. They say, my kid's on Medicaid. They say, no, they're not. Then you have to go through the whole process right there on the spot while your kid is sick um, to get your kid um, help. So that's, you know, why are we doing that? Um and so it creates a lot of stress. And I literally got some incredibly heartfelt messages from Medicaid recipients that would really break your heart about the stress that people are put under in this situation. Um, I don't know how they found me. I was just on the website. They found my email address, and they would send me a note. And so it creates stress for people. And the process of, you know, you can sort of cavalierly say, well, you just re-enroll. We'll take everybody back on. It's well known in the, those of us who study Medicaid that taking a person off the rolls and then putting them back on, it's not very easy to come back on the rolls. You have to produce a ton of documents to prove that you belong back on the rolls, and it, it's not very easy. And remember, these are people in low-income jobs and not always easy to navigate the government systems and so on. So it's a little bit too flippant, I think, to say, well, they can just come back on. And third thing I would say is why are we doing this? Because, you know, if it's literally the case, I mean, let's be honest about this. If it's 100,000 people and they all belonged off the program, then I, I don't think it's a big deal. But if these 100,000 people, a big percentage of them need to be brought back on the program, well, then we have a problem because we've created all this administrative nightmare in the, in the meantime. And I will also say, I said this on the committee, that we have now booked in $150 million in savings in the Medicaid program, assuming that this is the new enrollment level in Medicaid. And so, it, you know, and I, we challenged this, I challenged this and said, well, what if some of these 127,000 people come back on the rolls? Won't your estimate be wrong? I've been on that committee long enough to know that they often came back and said, oh, whoops, our estimates were wrong. We need another 100, 150, 200 million dollar supplement for Medicaid. So, just watch this in February, March. Will the state come back and say we need another 100 and 150 million dollars in Medicaid? I do want you to respond to some of the things that we've been hearing from people who have other explanations for why uh, the Medicaid rolls are dropping. We have a clip from Representative Wood, who said that the Medicaid rolls were dropping because people no longer have to pay a tax to the federal government when, they're, when they don't have health insurance. When the federal government removed the penalty on the taxes, um, then you don't have to do that anymore. So as that began in 2019, so the enrollments in 2018, if I'm on Medicaid, I'm having to pay a premium on CHIP, or if my income has moved me up to a uh, premium, I can say, no, I'm not going to do that. I can put my children on my own insurance. Or there's the 
bad scenario that the parents may make the choice not to insure their children. Yeah, I wanted you to respond. That was, again, Representative Wood's explanation about why we might be seeing this drop. Well, respectfully, I don't buy that explanation uh, for a couple different reasons. First of all, the what he's talking about is the so-called individual mandate under the Affordable Care Act, which was applied very controversial. And then he, as he's correctly saying that that was removed at the beginning of 2019. First of all, it's not well known, but that never applied to low-income people. If your income was so low that you're in this Medicaid-eligible population, you didn't have to, you were not mandated in the first place to enroll, uh, to get health insurance. You could just say, my income's too low. Second, um, if that were really the explanation for why 100,000 people dropped, why haven't we seen a, this 13 or 15 percent drop in every other state in the country? We're not. Just We haven't said this yet, but Missouri is leading the country. We're number one or two in the drop in Medicaid enrollment. So why is this? Obviously, that change in the individual mandate happened nationwide. So why is this not happening in all 51 states? Why aren't all these low-income people saying, ah, you know, I don't need Medicaid coverage? Third, I just find it sort of lacking. Just I just can't believe that a mother and kids or parents and kids would just basically say, you know, I'm not mandated to have coverage anymore, so I'm going to turn away free coverage. So, because that's basically what we're giving them is free Medicaid coverage. You know, these people, they're going to turn away coverage for their kids. I don't really buy it. Thank you, Dr. Tim McBride, for coming in to talk to us. You can find me, Julie O'Donohue, on Twitter at JSODonohue. You can find Jacqueline at Driscoll NPR. And, Dr. McBride, where can we find you? You are on Twitter a lot. I am on Twitter a lot. I'm pretty well known. At McBrideTD on Twitter. Or you can find us at wustel.edu. Uh, and finally, Dr. McBride, can you tell us where we can find this report one more time on the web? Yeah, publichealth.wustel.edu, and that should take you to the Institute for Public Health's website, and then you'll see our center, Center for Health Economics and Policy, and it's under public policy documents. So. Okay, and you can find our stories, my stories, and Jacqueline's stories at stlpublicradio.org. Thanks so much.